Um, <clears throat> Unfortunately, I don't know uh, the art side of Superman, so I can't uh, I can't tell you exactly what day it's in his memory. Besides the fact that uh, I heard that they uh, revived him, he had an interesting trias amazing, so he doesn't need the sicha. But I do know that uh, tomorrow night in Yitzhashem, the art of my grandfather, David ben Meir Shmuel, and this sichad lazech and the The Saramashkim said to Paro, Today I remember my sins, and he recounted what took place, how he ended up in jail. He wasn't sanctioning what he did, he was just bringing out the point in order to stress something. I too feel this way, as as I always say, I wasn't born with a beard and pace, and uh, I had what uh, is commonly known as an idiot box in the house. Rabbi Victor Miller explains so well, a pipe leading straight from the sewer into your living room, spewing forth its contents, better known as a television. Unfortunately, many of us didn't use a clock to run our life. We used the TV. When we heard certain theme songs emanating from it, we stopped whatever we were doing, and we worked our schedule around to make sure to be able to be privileged, quote-unquote, to see whatever garbage was coming out. You can imagine how I felt Unfortunately, one of my favorite programs, I wasn't Zoha when Superman came to the movies. I was already out of that parsha, But at least uh, I was privileged to see it on the TV. So you can imagine when I, how I felt when I heard... Episodes that I remembered had an interesting connection to tonight, to this topic of tefillah. There was an episode of a fellow who was unfortunately in jail, in prison. He was framed. They said he killed somebody, and he didn't. 
And Superman knew that he didn't. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. And they were going to take him out and kill him. They were going to put him in the electric chair. Shows you how old the show was, a while ago. And um, Superman ran to the governor to get a reprieve. And he comes back, flying with the reprieve. And you see the uh, fellow being marched in down to death row. And they're strapping him into the electric chair. And the warden is about to pull the switch. And all of a sudden, Superman breaks through the door. Right? Doesn't bother to knock. He just comes in. Lost his $100 deposit, probably, whatever. And uh, as the warden is pulling the lever to allow the electric current to go through the fellow's body, Superman puts his arm there, and you see all the current going into him. And you could imagine, how would you think that fellow who's sitting in the electric chair feels? If you'll pardon the pun, I would say he was quite shocked at what took place. Here's a guy who expects at any moment to be gone, finished. And all of a sudden, he gets a reprieve in life. Imagine. Imagine a Superman if this was all real, of course, right? It's not. It's <clears throat> but imagine. Superman would tell him, the governor wants to see you. The governor? I owe the governor my life. I'll do whatever he wants. What can I do for him? It's not for him, it's for you. The governor wants to see you in his office every morning at 7.30 for your benefit. Sure. Not going to make him an excuse. I'm tired. I'm this. Without the governor, where would I be? Without the reprieve, I wouldn't even be here to get up in the morning. The truth is, if we think for a moment, we actually go through the same scenario every night. We all know every night on Hashanah goes on trial. It's not just once a year on Rosh Hashanah. That's also true. It's a different kind of a trial. Every single night the Hashanah goes up and doesn't look too good. The Rabban Shalom has to decide, so to speak, whether or not the Neshama should come down again. And you can imagine what's going on up there. Judging on what the body and Neshama, what this individual did today, doesn't look too promising that uh, he deserves a chance to come down. And yet the Rabban Shalom says, give him a reprieve. And you can just imagine the Malachim sayings, you know, with all due respect, God, you know, give us a break. You said the same thing yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and so on. The guy's not getting any better, he's just getting worse. What are you sending him down for? The Shalom says, give him another chance. So when we wake up in the morning, we have to visualize, imagine this reprieve that was just granted to us. And the first words out of our mouth should not be to curse out the person who woke us up. Rather, it should be, You have returned my neshama with great mercy. 
Rabba great is your trustworthiness. And we should run. The Rabbi Shalom wants us to come here not for his benefit. We'll discuss more about tefillah in a moment. It's for our benefit. We owe everything to the Rabbi Shalom. I can tell you from ex- my own experiences, there were mornings, there were nights rather, when I went to sleep wondering if I would be given this privilege to wake up in the morning. And no matter what I did that night, which I wasn't proud of, one thing I knew when I woke up in the morning and I realized that I was granted that privilege, I ran to Davin. No matter what situation I was in, I said, the Rabbi Shalom gave me another chance. I owe it. I owe him everything. What is tefillah, Rabbi Say? Prayer. There are many concepts, many explanations. I'll only explain a few points. There's a beautiful sefer from a rabbi of mine, Rabbi Zayda Epstein, called Meimrei Shloimoi. Meimrei Shloimoi is a sefer of Sichot from his mashkiach in the Grodni Yeshiva. His mashkiach was a Shlomo Harkabi. And he says over an interesting point. Right away in the beginning of the Chumash, you find that the grass was ready to come out of the ground on the third day of the creation. But it didn't come out yet. Rashi explains why didn't it come out. He explains from the Pasuk, because there wasn't rain. Why wasn't there rain? Because Adam, Adam wasn't created till the sixth day. There wasn't Adam or man who would realize the necessity of rain. So what happened, Rashi says? On the sixth day, when Adam was created, and he realized the goodness and importance of rain, he prayed for it, and they came down, and everything grew. The magic word here is, is he realized the importance, and he prayed for it. Rachi is stressing a very important point. What do you see from this? It's already, you get mail, in your post office box, but if you lose the key, it won't come out. It's all ready and waiting to come. But you need the key to open the door, to unlock it, to be able to get it out. What is the key we see? Sometimes even if a person deserves something and it's all ready and waiting in the post office, he needs one key to open the door to allow it to come through. And the Chazal teaches us that that's davening. That's prayer. And Hashem doesn't do it because He needs our prayer. It's, we get closer to the Rebbein Shalom this way. The Mashkiach spoke many times. When we pray and thereby enable the goodness to come to us, we are helping it come so that we won't be embarrassed. It won't be bread of embarrassment. Nama the kisufa. To get things served to us on a silver platter. We do something to get it. Not that the Rabbi needs it. This is the first point of tefillah, Rabbi Yisrael. 
that when something is ready to come, we need to use the key to get it. And sometimes if we don't use the key, sometimes we won't get it. Sometimes we'll get some, sometimes we'll get it without the key. We'll talk about that later. But the optimum way, the main way to get it, is by using the key of tefillah. That's even, that's things that you already deserve. Now there's another step. He goes a step further. Even if there are things that by no means do we deserve it. Sometimes tefillah can cause a situation where we'll get it anyway. Even though we don't deserve it. And it's a very strong weapon. We find the Medrash says that the Rabboni Shalom did not allow Moshe Rabbeinu to come into Eretz Yisrael. And he made a shvua, an oath, that he's not going to come in. And then the Rabboni Shalom says, close the gates of Tefillah. Moshe Rabbeinu was praying to God to let him in, and God said, after he made the shvua, close the gates of Tefillah, to prevent Moshe Rabbeinu's prayer from coming in. What would be if it came in? He, he swore already. What did it talk about? The Tarot says, yes. If a prayer is, is good, it could even cause something which God already swore that he wouldn't do. It would cause him somehow to break this oath and do it. And the Rabbi Shalom didn't want it. So he said, close the gates of Tefillah to prevent his Tefillah from coming in. So we see the second aspect, that tefillah helps even for things that we don't even deserve. And then my rabbi pointed out, you may say, very good, that's Moshe Rabbeinu's tefillah, but what about our tefillah? What's our tefillah worth? So he said the beautiful point. He says, when the Chazal teach us that the Ovos were massacring tefillah, Avram Avinu, made Shachris, it says. Yitzchak made Mincha, and Yaakov made Mayrib. What it means basically is, they made the arrangements whereby even simple people in Klal Yisrael can get closer to Hashem through Tefillah. The Leveliyo, Rabbi Leo Lofian explains this point in a similar manner. He says, you make a phone call. Do you realize you pick up a phone and you're talking to somebody 6,000 miles away? How does it work? Do you realize how much cable was laid out? How many labor and man hours were used to prepare this phone call for you? That's exactly what happens with tefillah. The Avos were able to lay the framework, put out the cables, so to speak, so that even our tefillahs, even though they're not as great, obviously, as the Avos, they'll also travel and reach the Rabbani Shalom. But you have to pick up the phone to make the call. And my rabbi used to use this example to explain another point. People say, ah, well, I don't understand how davening works, so... A person makes a phone call if you start asking him the intricacies of how it works, how does it travel, how does it... 
How does sound travel? You don't know. I don't know. I don't know all the scientific things involved. But one thing I know, you pick up the phone, you make the call. I don't have to know how it works in order to do it. I just have to know how to pick up the phone. It's the same thing with dominating. What's the difference? You don't know how it works. You do know how it works. You pick it up and you make the call. And of course, it would be much better if you understand the simple translation of the words. There are shiurim given in tefillah. There are plenty of shadurim if you open them up and look at the translations. Some people may ask, okay, fine, you got to dive in. But why so many times? Once a year, maybe. Yom Kippur, even then, you know, it's hard to get people to come sometimes. But every single day, so many times a day. So there's an interesting question that the Gemara and Yuma asked, which is similar to this. The Talmidim of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai asked him, the Gemara is in Yuma. Ein Vav Amidalf. Why did the man come down every day? Why not once a year? They didn't have a big freezer. Don't worry. The man, if the Rabbi Shalom wanted the man to come once a year, it wouldn't rot. When it wasn't supposed to rot, it didn't rot. But the Baruch could have just thrown down the man once, finished, for not for 40 years or for one year. Why every single day did man come down except Shabbos? So Rav Shemayachoy answered them with a marshal. There was once a Melach who used to give his son his allowance once a year. And that's exactly when he saw him, once a year. So he gave him his allowance every day. Instead of giving him one large amount for the whole year, he gave his allowance every day, and then he was able to see him every day. So too, B'nai Yisrael, HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have given them the man once a year, and they would have prayed to him, or spoken to him, let's say, once a year. But out of the love, why did the king want to see his son every day? Because he doesn't like his son, on the contrary, he loves his son. He doesn't want to see him just once a year. My rabbi used to say, if a parent sends his kid the allowance for the whole year, and the beginning of the year, the parent knows they're not going to hear from the kid till the money goes. So the parent is smart and sends only a little money at a time, because when the money runs out, he's sure that the son is going to write to him. Why? He doesn't like the child. He loved the child. I want to hear from my child. The Rabbi Shalom wants to hear from us. We get closer to him. So, by the man also, B'nai Israel, since they knew the man didn't come down, there was only enough for that day. What's going to be tomorrow? They weren't sure, they were worried, who knows? So they would turn to the Almighty and ask him for the man for tomorrow. The truth is, there was one being who had the quote-unquote privilege of getting its sustenance without any prayer at all. And that was the Nachash. The Nachash was cursed, the snake was cursed, that the dust of the earth would be its sustenance. 
And everyone wonders, what kind of curse is this? It's a blessing. It doesn't have to go beseech God for its sustenance. It always had its sustenance handy, the dust of the earth. And the Kutz Karabah said, that's no blessing. That's a curse. Chavayachal, the Rebbe is saying, I don't want to see your face. Take your sustenance and get out of here. That's not a good situation to be in. And I asked Rabbi Epstein, the one who wrote this answer before from the Meir Shlomo, I asked him, Taka, what about people there are, unfortunately people who do get sustenance, and they don't daven. If davening is the key to sustenance, and you don't get it without the key, so what about the people that apparently seem to be getting their sustenance without using the key? So he told me this point with the Nachash. We don't know, but Rachman al-Azlan, the Rabbi Shalom might be dealing with these people like the Nachash. It's hard to say that. We don't want to say that. You want your sustenance? Take it and don't bother me. Just, I don't want to see your face. That's not a privilege, Rabbi Shalom. We're much better off being in the other situation. Where the Rabbi Shalom loves us and wants to see us. And wants us to get close to him. <clears throat> There's another aspect of tefillah. There's a sefer from Rav Chatzka Levenstein about El Rav Chatzka Levenstein and the whole Sichan and, and himself, Mashkiach, Panovitz, Zechat Tzadik Lebracha, un- unbelievable Tzadik. He says a very interesting observation. He says, We are submerged in a society that preaches Koichi Vaitzem Yadi. Literally means that a person believes in his own might. Everything that he does is because he's strong and he's smart and he's capable. He's a self-made man. Maybe once in a blue moon he remembers that there's a God in the world. This is unfortunately not the Jewish way of thinking. The Jew understands everything that happens in every capability that he has is a gift of the Rabbani Shalaylam. And when the Rabbani Shalaylam doesn't want him to have it in a fraction of a second, we don't have to look far. You see Rahman al-Islam, people, Rahman al-Islam strokes in moments. They're incapacitated. The guy could be the biggest genius in the world. Two minutes later, he doesn't know anything. What happened to this great person? For whatever reason, the Rabbi Shalom took it away. We don't know. Unfortunately, since we live in this kind of society, we need constant reminders that this is not so. We get so influenced by it. You read the Titanic. There was an article. Everyone knows about the great, an unbelievable ship. They, they, they didn't even have enough lifeboats. They felt it was, you don't even need it. It's unsinkable. In the Reader's Digest, one of the people said, before its maiden voyage, not even God could sink this ship. As Noah Weinberg said, they were looking for trouble. And of course, on their maiden voyage, they sunk 
to an iceberg. This is the kind of, and people didn't learn from that. You think the people learned from that? No, whatever. We have to continuously hammer into ourselves, Sichot, that there's a Rabbanishalim in the world, and he gives us everything in order to counteract the bombardment of this that we keep hearing. So what is one of the ways, one of the sikhot? He says, very good. He says that consequently we need constant reminders that Hashem runs the world. That is what tefillah and brachis on food teach us. They are miniature sikhot, each one on emuna and hashkacha. We constantly say, You give us brains. You give us the ability. Constantly repeating that. Not like people think, Oh, I'm studied, I'm smart, I use my brains. Who gave you the ability? You heal us. Not the doctor, he's just a shaliach at most. And you make a bracha. Think of what we're saying. We say, God, everything was done by you. We need these constant, these are like, just recently this whole business with the gas mask, because you're afraid of the gas. We need these like miniature gas masks to protect us from the contamination of the world. This kochi v'oitzim yadi, and it's my power and I did it. And it's not so hard to do. And we need it. There's a beautiful sefer from Rabbi Arya Kaplan's Hatzal, A Call to the Infinite. He brings a special tefillah which is brought down in the Chavis HaLavavas, the duties of the heart. And it says like this, You know what is best for me, we tell God, and how to provide for me. I do not express my needs to you to make you aware of them. That's an old question. What do I have to tell the Rabbi Yisrael? No better what I need than I do. Why am I saying, give me this? He knows. So we say clearly, you're right. I'm not telling you, Rabbi Yisrael, because to make you aware of my needs. So why am I saying it? But so that I may be made to realize, I may be made to realize my dependence upon you, reinforcing my trust in you. That's the second aspect of tefillah. We need it as a constant reminder. Or else we'll be sunk and, and just follow the barrage of attacks that are being put upon us to believe that we're so great. There's another aspect. Tefillah is very therapeutic, Rabbi Isai. It helps to calm a person's fears. We all have problems. It's no secret. A person, uh, whatever the problem is, Tfila is a way where we speak to someone, somebody who can really help. I can't tell you how many times I've had experiences. One in particular stands out many years ago. My daughter, unfortunately, was in an accident. An Egged bus ran over her foot. And we were worrying what it's going to be. Will she be able to walk? 
they had to do certain operations. The doctor uh, can't guarantee anything. And of course, the Torah says, Varapo Yerape, you should go looking. You don't expect miracles. You try to get the best doctors. And we, we had to, we looked around to see who was best suited to do the operation. But I knew it's just a shaliach. And then it was night. I was in Hadassah in Karim. And there was going to be a minion for Meirv in a few minutes. I think maybe that was one of the best Meirvs that I ever done. I cried my heart out to the doctor of all doctors, to the Rabbani Shalom. Rafa'enu meant a lot more to me that night. And I felt like a million dollars afterwards. I was prepared. Whatever will happen, will happen. But I did mine. I spoke to the people. When you make an effort, you, you do the best you can. You feel, okay, I did mine. When I daven, when we daven, that's the thing that you can really do. Everything else is okay. You have to do it. You don't expect miracles. You got to try to get a doctor. But the main one that decides everything is the Rabbanishlam. And it's such a gewaltige feeling. It's such a great feeling. You don't have to spend money and make appointments to see psychiatrists or psychologists. He's the one. He'll take you any time. Never busy. Always has time for you. It's a gewaltige feeling. Even country Yatsi has a song called Speak to Hashem where he says in part speak to Hashem when life has got you down and you know if you speak with all of your heart then Hashem will make your blues depart another very important point people say fine I hear but why with the minion rabbi Davening, ah, daven, you know, my room, whatever. Why with a minion? Why, why there is such a stress on davening with a ten people? So, the Chafetz Chaim has a special thing in Shmir Saloshan at the end of the Sefer where he discusses this very point. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, just a, a few of the great privileges that you gain and advantages that you gain with davening with a minion. The first thing he says is, Hashem doesn't despise the tefillah of a tzibor, of a minion. Whereas the individual tefillah, he looks at every bracha to see if it is done with the proper kavana. It's a Gemara in brachas. Va'aniz tefillah silacha Hashem eis ratzom. Eimosai eis ratzom bezmancha tzibor mispalom. That itself, we all want our tefillahs to be heard. A person needs a job or something, he'll get, he'll write a letter to the boss or get someone to write it. He'll do everything that he feels will enable him to get his request. We want our tefillahs to be heard. The first thing we got to realize is that beyachidos alone, it's not that easy. Alit with the tziba, we have a head start. There's another aspect is Shachalicha. Every step that a person takes to go to Shul Vadavan, that itself is a separate mitzvah. There's another aspect. When a lot of people do mitzvahs, that makes each person's mitzvah a lot bigger than if each one does it alone. 
When a group does a mitzvah together, that enhances the mitzvah and makes it worth a lot more. And he goes through, just quickly, he says, you're putting on tefillin, kriyishma, yetzias mitzrayim, all these things are being done as a group. That makes each person's tefillah a lot greater. Then, of course, there's also the ability to answer, Amen, Baruch Hu, Yeheshmei, Rabbah. We don't realize the greatness. Kedusha. There's a beautiful story. I don't have time to tell you the whole thing. There's a story about how severely someone was punished for not answering Amen. So you can imagine how much schar there is for answering Amen. And Amen doesn't come near Yeheshmei Rabbah and Baruch and Kedusha. I always say the guy wakes up and says, Oh, I missed Minion. It's already raised 8 o'clock and uh, I'll never make it. Come even for the last Baruch Hu. Come for the last Yeheshmei Rabbah. You don't realize what it is. That itself is the tremendous advantage that you get from dominating with the Minion. In the book, A Call to Infinite, Call to the Infinite by Rabbi Kaplan Zatzal, he writes also about dominating with a minion. He quotes the Medrash Eicha. Rabbi Acha said, What does one who pray with a minion resemble? It resembles a number of people who make a crown for the king. And a poor man comes along and places his portion in it. Which obviously is not a big portion. What could the poor man put there? A couple of pebbles. But the king says, Just because of the poor man, shall I not accept the crown? The king accepts the whole crown. And when he places the crown on his head, the poor man's portion is also included. Likewise, if there are ten righteous men worshipping, and a wicked person stands among them, Hashem says, just because of this sinner, shall I not accept their worship? That's a beautiful point. We know our tefillahs alone, it's not too good. But at least when we're together in the group, and the group, the tefillah goes up to Shemaim. He also quotes the Gemara in Yerushalmi. Rabbi Yochanan said, when one worships at home, it is if, it is if he's surrounded with walls of iron. I'm not saying you shouldn't daven. If, if, if you can't daven with him, you shouldn't daven altogether alone. But it's definitely a last resort, Rabbi when we realize all the privileges and all the probabilities that our tefillah will be more accepted with dominating with a minion, then dominating with a minion takes on a whole, dif- whole different outlook. There's a beautiful story. It's actually, the whole book is an unbelievable book. There's a book called Responsa of the Holocaust by Rabbi Ephraim Ashri. I happen to know the author personally. I dominate his shul on the east side. It's mind-boggling. The whole book is a whole Musa Shmuz. One of the things you learn from it is what people risked during the Holocaust to keep Torah and Mitzvahs. Every single Shiloh there. These are people who Rahman al-Islam, of course we can't judge people. There are many people who Rahman al-Islam were turned off because of the Shoah. 
But here are people who experienced it. And rather than being turned off, did everything in their power to keep Torah and Mitzvahs, despite their hardships. When we see a book like that, we should wake up and say, what the heck the matter with us? Baruch Hashem, we don't have such hardships. Okay, everyone has his hardship, getting up in the morning, whatever it is, but compared to them, so where are we? That itself is worth it, to read the book and see what people are willing to do. The mitzvahs, even under such circumstances, and apply it to ourselves. So there's one tshuva in particular there, one responsa. The Shiloh was risking one's life to study Torah or to pray with a minion. The Shiloh there was basically, they knew there was a decree if they would be caught dominating with a minion or even learning in a base medrash, there was a death penalty involved. They wanted to know if they were to give up their lives to die with a minion and learn. So he writes like this. The accursed evildoers plotting treachery after treachery were aware that this well of hope and comfort inside the synagogues gave the Jews courage and strength to stand up to their tribulations. It was no surprise when the Germans issued a decree forbidding public prayer and Torah study under the punishment of death. Reb Naftali Weintraub, the Gabbai of the Gabbanovich Shul, may Hashem avenge him, asked me whether the Torah law obligated him to risk his life to pray with his daily minion and compelled him to risk his life for the Torah study. And this is his response. I did not have the heart to rule that every Jew should risk his life in order to study Torah and pray with a minion. There were few with the purity of thought that could raise them to the level of a Daniel and his comrades, Hananiel, Mishov, Azariah, who risked their lives to sanctify God even when they were not bound to. On the other hand, how could I forbid anyone to risk his life? All Jews possess holy souls that originate at the highest level, above, and according to the halacha, each individual must probe the degree of his personal love and awe of God to determine his level of service to God and his consequent right or duty to make sacrifices. Beyond any doubt, the master of justice and mercy guides each person to accurate sensitivity. In fact, the sacred sons of the living God acted as they had always done. They continued to study Torah and to pray with their fellow Jews. Even on Rosh Hashanah, 1942, the Jews did not fear that the Germans would hear the powerful blast of their shofar during the prayer. Not only did the Jews gather in the many houses of prayer and set up for the holiday, but in the ghetto hospital, the assimilationists, the irreligious doctors themselves, defied the German decree and risked their lives in order to pray publicly. There's another beautiful story from the book called Sparks of Glory by Rabbi Moshe Prager. The name of the story is called The Secret Prayer in the Basement. He tells the story of a young child named Shmulek who had endured many beatings from the Germans while trying to get food for Shabbos. Now he wanted to go with his father to pray at the risk of their lives in the secret basement. And his father, who didn't want to risk the safety of everybody involved, 
refused to let his son come. As the congregation was praying, they heard a knock on the door, which was not the special agreed secret knock. They opened the door with trepidation and expected to find the Germans. But all they saw was little Schmulek knocking on the gate of prayer. At this his father came and with tremendous anger he screamed, Such chutzpah, Schmulek! Who are you to disobey orders? And then he gave his son a painful, humiliating slap. And Shmuelah cried out and said, Will you beat me too? Haven't I had my share of blows? I too am a Jew. I too want to pray. Rabbi Sai, we see these stories, how cheap we should feel. We see how these people were ready to give up their lives for a minion. One minion, they could have a mincha with their tefillin on. What do they need to risk their lives for? What's the big deal? Obviously it meant, they understood what it meant. They were willing to give up their lives. No one's asking us. We're not even ready to give up a little sleep for minion. We should feel even worse. It hurts even more. If we do get out of bed, Rabbi Sai, but only to go into the dining room. What kind of chutzpah is this? We make the effort to go to eat, but not to go to daven. I saw a guy in the basement, in the dining room. I mentioned to him about the sicha. He said he's not in the yeshiva anymore. I don't know if I told him, but I was thinking, you're not in the yeshiva, but you eat here. So why don't you at least come for a sicha also? For food, you are in the yeshiva. We've got to get our priorities straight. No one's asking us to give up our lives. I'll end off with a beautiful point, which I stress many times. It's based on a Pusik, a Pusik in Mishle. Omar Otsel, the lazy man says, Ariba Chutz, Ertzach. The lazy man said, there's a lion outside in the streets. I'll be killed. I can't go out. You want me to go down? You want me to go out and do a mitzvah? There's a lion out there. So I heard from our Rabbeim, a beautiful pshat. What's going on over here? If there really is a lion out there, then he's right. What do you want from him? He's got a point. If there is no lion out there, then he's not a lazy man. He's a liar. Why is Solomon calling him a lazy man? So the answer is beautiful, Rabbi Sai. Avare, there's a lion out there. He's not lying. But a person has to understand, would this deter him if he had something that he wanted to do? If it would be Thursday night or someone's birthday and he's got to go, the fact that there's a lion outside would not stop him. He would already find an Eitzah. He would find already what to do. He would call a friend, call the police. I don't know. He would do something. The problem is he's lazy. Oh my hotel. He doesn't want to go. So it's no excuse. We have to understand these things, Rabbi Sai. And as I always say, the main problem is usually not getting up in the morning. My Rabbi said the main problem is going to sleep on time. You have to be a chacham. When it comes to a job, we'll get 50 alarm clocks. The same guy's rabbi, I don't know, it's not my fault, God made me this way, it's my nature, I can't get up in the morning, uh, maybe 12 o'clock, maybe, on a good day, whatever. 
The same guy, I meet him in the summer, he's a trucker, he's getting up at six in the morning. I don't know, he had a Rafua Shlema. Obviously, either he goes to sleep at a normal time, or he realizes, I have no choice. This is what I have to do. Let's understand what Tefillah is, Rabbi Sam. It's for our benefit. And as I always say, we'll live a happier life in this world and the next.